The camp is stirring as dawn breaks through. The cook is up. She's boiled a brew as greys and pinks and purples flood the sky. The crew start waking, stretching, yawning. Just another outback morning. Nah, this one's special. It's Macca on a Sunday morning. Good morning and welcome wherever you are. We were talking about Australian Made last week. Uh, Shirley McEwen says, I was listening to last week's program and people were talking about products being made in Australia. You were talking to Simon Crane. Most everything is made in China, at least for the last 20 or 30 years. Every Saturday, my my husband takes me shopping at the Karatha Tip Shop. This is a bit of an ongoing joke with us as he tells his mates he's taking me out shopping. At the tip. <laughs> it's like after Christmas sales. As soon as the gates are open, the rush is on. I was looking at the garden pot section when I spied a large plastic watering can. When I went to pay for it, I noticed that the bottom of the can was made in Australia in the mould of the plastic. I said, oh, look at this, made in Australia. The tip shop attendant said, I'd better charge you more for it then. <laughs> I have taken a photo of it, but I am unsure as how to attach it to this message. I was so surprised it was in such good condition. It must have been sitting in a shed and not being used. Well, it's a little bargain, Shelley. There you go. And I meant to tell you last week, uh, Alan emailed me just at the end of the program and said, Ian, did you know Australian horse trainer Eric Reed has won the Kentucky Derby? Well, he didn't win. He trained the winner. The winner was called Rich Strike. And it was 80 to 1, kids. 80 to 1. Why weren't we on that? G'day, this is Macca. G'day, Hello. Macca. Jerry. Jerry, is G'day, it? Mate. Yeah, mate. How are you, Jerry? Not too bad. Uh, coming back from Port Hedland, WA, back into Queensland. <laughs> Tell me your story. Well, uh, my partner and I got caught in Western Australia with COVID. Uh, we've just finished two years of mining operations in Port Hedland with gold and Iron ore, and we're coming back to Queensland to Morumbah in the coal. Wow. So we, we spent the last, this is our fifth day on the road, and I'm looking at a sunrise about 60 k's east of Julia Creek. Oh, what a lovely place to be, Jerry. Does it look uh, clear and fine? Uh, clear and fine. Um, some high-level cloud by the looks of it right on the very edge of the horizon. But uh, it's all clear at every other point of the compass. Jerry, what do you do? Uh, communications, machinery operator, all-rounder. Uh-huh. My partner's the same. Um, we were working in iron ore and gold mining operations in Western Australia, and we've just finished up those appointments, and uh, we've been asked to come uh, back, and, uh, yeah, why not? It was a good move to come back to Queensland. I already feel like I'm at home. <laughs> you, you Were you living in Port Hedland, were you, Jerry? Yeah, um, we were FIFO when we went into Western Australia, my partner and I. However, uh, with COVID and all that, we uh, uh, inadvertently became residents of Port Hedland for two years. And what was that like? Uh, it's challenging. Um, like every rural town, it's got its good and bad. Uh, you, we, you're certainly acclimatised to the climate. Uh, I've done a lot of work in North Queensland and Central Queensland, so you're sort of at the same parallel. You know, you're up around the 27th parallel, so a lot of the stuff you'd do in North Queensland with hydration and looking after yourself, you do over there. It's just a dry heat, not a, a humid heat. Yeah, it's a great. Well, I think it's a great life when you you know you can live and work in different places for a, a year or two. Um, and your occupation will take you around Australia. I mean, mining's the. I often think about you know we talk about manufacturing and everything, but really Australia relies on primary industry, mining and agriculture, doesn't it? Still does. All you know, we used to talk about Australia being on the wool's the wool's back, you know, uh, you know in the fifties and sixties, but uh, we still depend on you know our primary industry, really, don't we? And and you you're in that, so you'll work everywhere because everybody wants our coal and they want you know everything. Yeah, well, that's correct there. Um... My partner and I both have got um, backgrounds, actually. We started off in agriculture. We're, uh, we're from uh, west of the Divide to start with in Queensland. And, um, yeah, it was a natural progression, you know, uh, to go from agriculture into mining. And uh, we've never been without a job. So when mining's been low, we go back to ag. And when ag's, uh, when mining's low, we, uh, sorry, when ag's low, we go back to mining. They sort of go hand in hand in a way. And uh, working on... Uh, a lot of different First Nations uh, country has actually been quite enjoyable. Like uh, we had, we, we were lucky to work on um, like a lot of these places are remote, 
and when you work on on First Nations country, on uh, you get a different perspective, um, both culturally as well as environmentally, and that's a big thing in both aspects of mining and agriculture. And it's um, it's been one hell of an experience. It's uh, when we first went to WA, it literally looked like a, a Pat Callahan magazine, you know, with the the contrasts of the the deep blue sky, the red dirt, and uh, you've got the, the contrast between the two of it of, of the white <laughs> the white gum trees. Yeah. Literally. It was amazing. And uh, unfortunately, we were, we were too busy working, but when we could get time off, we uh, we definitely had lots of... Uh, we took as many photographs as we could. You just, um, you just couldn't... Yeah, you've got to experience it. You know, the pictures you see in magazines and on the internet on where to go and, you know, things to see are just... They just don't do them justice. No, and I think, as you said, you're just too busy. A lot of us work hard and, you know, I think of courier drivers. They're just tearing around all the time because they've got to do it and work hard and they just go, go, go. But as Gilbert, old Gilbert used to say to me, you know, you need to take time to stop and smell the daisies because <clears throat> there's another world out there and, and it's very calming in lots of ways, if, especially if you've got a busy job. Yes, well, that's it. Um, we were running, you know, two-on-one rosters or a three-in-one roster. Um, you naturally get back to what you need to do to get ready to go back out, but the few times we could go out, um, we, uh, my partner and I both took up uh, being drone pilots and um, our little business, which we took over to Western Australia with us, we, uh, we've captured some really nice drone photography. You're just not gonna get a, an unparalleled uh, view. You just, you just can't compare it to anything else you see anywhere else. Yeah, a drone, a drone pilot, it's a contradiction in terms, isn't it? Because you're not actually a pilot, but you're a pilot. But you're not a pilot like a pilot, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I know. It's it's quite odd. Uh, I was talking to some flyboys there a while ago, and they're like, oh, but you don't get off the ground. It's says, yeah, but we're still governed by the same rules by CASA. He says, you know, we've still got to be accredited, and our little drone, even though it only weighs a couple of kilos... It still has to be uh, still has to be registered like a, a full blown aircraft, like a, a Cessna or a little Bell or something. Yeah, they're and they're amazing, aren't they? I see movies now, and I think that wasn't done with a you know in time was aero shots were done with helicopters and helicopter pilots, and now a no, lot of, a lot of that stuff's all done with drones, isn't it? Because it's I suppose it's easier and cheaper. Well, yes and no. Um, we actually got into it by accident. It was an extension of what we were doing. And um, naturally, you can use them for work, for inspection services, and that's what we were doing, and, and aerial surveying. And then um, the, uh, the flip corner of it, you've got the recreational stuff. And uh, some of the times when we got some time out um, towards... Uh, we went down to Caratha, Dampier, um, you know, those sort of places. Port Hedland, we went out to the, um, the mud flats and everything like that. We really got some really good... Um, aerial photography in, in 4K and it literally it, it looks like you're there, you know, and, and it's, it's amazing the technology. Well but, uh, you just you just get a completely different point of view. Yeah, I'll have to get a, I'll have to get a drone and <laughs> and do some stuff. I was thinking I was thinking of doing that doing a little doco myself, but uh, you need, you know, as part of that you need a drone these days, don't you? Yeah, well it's it's becoming uh, the new norm now. Um a lot of our work, a lot of the big companies actually do a lot of their own surveying in-house now. Um, so, sort of, we're, we're, we're taking our services back to Queensland with us, obviously, but that's where we got started with that venture. But uh, it's, um, it's, it's certainly, um, it is cheaper, that's for sure, and yeah. um, you, still, it's, uh, you don't have all the extra added expense. Like, with what we could do in an hour... Um, you know, it'd it take a, a, you know, a small team of men oh, and yeah. lots more money and aviation fuel and very expensive aircraft. It'd take them all day to do. Exactly, exactly. Very expensive too, especially these days with the cost of fuel. Jerry, you'll have a, uh, you'll have a turmeric latte in Huendon or somewhere, will you, this morning or what? <laughs> oh, I'd like to say I'm that sophisticated, but uh, <laughs> my partner and I are both humble. We, we started the day off with a, a Nescafe effort from the... Uh, the Julia Creek um, Hotel there. 
uh, sorry, Julie Creek Motel where we stayed. Yeah. And um, yeah, we're just humble guys, just going back. We, uh, it's really weird. We, uh, we, we made a comment to each other this morning. Uh, we brought a bottle of milk over from Western Australia. I'm sitting here thinking, well, this is a well-travelled bottle of milk now. It's, you know, <laughs> five days across the country, and we're still going on it. Good on you, Jerry. Great to talk to you, mate. I'll see you sometime in Morumbah. Morumbah, is that where you're going to? Yes, that's correct, mate. Good on you, Jerry. Nice to talk to you. Thanks for your call. You too. Thanks, mate. See Cheers. you, mate. Bye. Matthew's in Langlang. Are you, Matthew? Yeah, I've got Jamaica. How are you going this morning? Yeah, good. Thanks, mate. Yeah, that's good. Well, tell people where um, Lang- tell everyone where Langlang is, because a lot of people. Um, yeah, Lang Lang's just sort of down uh, towards South Gippsland Way, just on the outskirts of Melbourne. It's getting mm. very much um, a lot of building, houses and stuff going up everywhere through this region. Mm. But yeah, just um, not far from Phillip Island either, would, people would be more familiar with, I think. A nice place to live. You live there, Matthew, do you? Oh, no, I'm actually living just in Pakenham at the moment and I'm just sort of travelling to work. Uh, so yeah, I just thought I'd pull up and give you a call. Good on you. <laughs> what, what do you do? Uh, I drive a milk tanker. All right. Yeah. yeah, so just going around the farms and picking up the milk and, yeah, taking it off to a factory somewhere. I wonder, I was just thinking the other day when I went past a, a coffee shop's fridge and it was stacked with milk, and I was just thinking how much more milk would be consumed these days. I mean, I know people have soy latte and all that sort of stuff, but how much more milk would be used in the last 20 years since coffee's become the de drink of Australians must use much, much, much more milk, you would think, wouldn't you, Matthew? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, definitely for sure. Like, yeah, we've got quite a few tankers and we're only one company and we run around picking up a lot of milk and there's some other larger companies that do it and, yeah, there's many, many milk tankers on the road in this region anyway. Well, time was nobody drank coffee, you know. Time was, I mean, I'm talking 40 years ago, but, you know, yeah. you know what I'm saying. Now... Everybody has to have a coffee. Every Australian, just seems to me, goes down the coffee shop every morning, every morning, and uh, has a coffee, or maybe two or three. So that's... Yeah, yeah. I've got one sitting between my legs right at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> so how, how long's your run, Matthew? Um, I've got a little bit of a short run today. I've just sort of got a few farms uh, down towards uh, Lee and Gathaway mm. to pick up, and then I've got to take that to the uh, Lee and Gatha factory, the Saputo factory at Lee and Gatha, so... It shouldn't be a big day, hopefully. So, and you do this all week? This is your full-time job? Yes, it is, yeah. It's a sort of a work a five-day on, three-day off roster, and that just sort of keeps pushing forward every... Um, oh, your days off keep pushing forward every week, so I quite enjoy that part of the job. Hard to get drivers? Are they doing all right, or you're only small companies? Um, yeah, I think so. I know a lot of the other companies are looking for drivers, and... Um, the company that I work for, they were pretty desperate there going back a few months, but we seem to be sort of stabilised. The milk's dropped off a little bit at the moment because a lot of cows are sort of being dried off and having their rest before they come in again. Yeah. Yeah, so there doesn't seem to be quite as much milk around as what there was a month or so back. And a weather report for this morning in uh, Lang Lang, mate? Oh, very calm. It's not cold or anything like that, just very calm, and I think we're in for quite a nice day today, a nice sunny day. Nice to talk to you, Matthew. Yeah. Hey, hey Macca. Yeah. Sorry. I, I just, the uh, reason I rang, my mm-hmm. father passed away uh, 12 months of the day, and he used to take me relief milking in the mornings when he used to go milk people's cows. All right. And we listened to a song that you play. This is going back over 20 years ago. It was about Captain Cook had a stutter. He all named them wrong. Oh, yeah. He called Wagga. Yeah, I was just wondering if you could play that Captain, at some stage no, today. No, Captain Sturt. I think oh, Captain, Captain Sturt, Sturt had a there. stutter and he named the towns all wrong. He called Wagga, Wagga, Wagga. He yeah. called Grong, Grong, Grong. Yeah, um, my father absolutely loved that song. I like, giggle <laughs> about it all the time. And I just thought for 12 months since he's been gone, yeah. I just yeah, wondering if you could possibly play I don't it. know where it would be. I can't even remember. It was, it was, it was um, a little folk group and it was sort yeah. of a corny little song, but that's, it was Captain Sturt. Because Sturt must yep. have named those play, or he went exploring through those areas. So Captain yep. Sturt had a stutter, and he named the towns all wrong. Yeah, he called yeah, Wagga, yeah. Wagga, Wagga. He called Grong, Grong, Grong. Yeah, um, I'm so... my father's face right now as you sing that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, uh, like I've tried to find it myself, but I can't find it. So yeah, look, I'll have a look. I haven't seen it for ages, mate. Um, I played it yeah. now and again. I'm glad I made your dad smile. Um, oh, oh, mate, yeah, the big massive smile I put on his face. <laughs> Good on you, Matthew. Great to talk, mate. Right, Thanks, mate. See, See you, mate. Bye. Yeah, g'day. My name's Jeff. How are you? Good, thanks, Jeff. That's all right. We're um, carting air conditioners from Bendigo all the way through to a gold mine in WA, mm. and they're 5.2 metres uh, wide, and they're 22 metres long and about 2.5 metres tall. Wow. Nearly as big as a house. Yes, exactly. So <laughs> they come. they built in Bendigo, or what's the story, Jeff? Yeah, they're built in Bendigo. There's a, a company there, and I'm not quite sure of the name of the company, but we picked them up. We have four pilots and two prime movers and two big air conditioners. And so where are you at the moment, Jeff? We're at Charlton in Victoria, and mm. we're fogged in this morning. Oh, really? Yeah, it was fogged where I was, but not as bad as that obviously sounds. So you, you stop, you've got to stop, I suppose, have you, when it's bad like that? Yeah, we need 250 metres minimum um visibility because you know people coming toward us on the roads because we take two-thirds three-quarters of the bitumen yeah so where where's the uh, mine you're taking them to jeffrey north of leinster in west australia so it's a gold mine correct uh and And, obviously underground mine yeah and these these guys sit uh sit there and pump i don't know how much air but the the uh, fans on them are about five foot in diameter so they pump, go on. They pump air down the down the shaft and keep the fellas working underground cool. Oh, I see, yeah, and fresh air too. I suppose it, that's uh, that's important to be down there too, just to get some fresh air, isn't it? Keep the air circulating. Yeah, it is, and uh, yeah. So we're we're doing that for uh, for um, I don't know if it's a new gold mine or it's an older one, but anyway, I just thought I'd ring you up and let let people know because um, it's an unusual load. I'll say, and let Aussies know what other Aussies are doing, uh, Jeff. Tell me, uh, you do this all the time? Yeah, yeah, I'm a, I'm a pilot on the roads. We, um, I, I run all over Australia. We do every state, every highway. <laughs> Beautiful country we've got. Yeah, I'll say. And uh, is it, uh, at times are good, you, you're pretty busy? <laughs> flat out. Yeah, Absolutely flat out. That's that's the story with everybody, Jeff, isn't it? It doesn't matter what you're doing, making coffee or, you know, sweeping the streets or piloting uh, goods around Australia, you name it, um, everybody's got a job or seem to have. Yeah, it's an amazing thing, isn't it? We all stopped a year and a half ago and now we now we just cannot keep up. <laughs> yeah. I know it's it's quite amazing. So, Jeff, you have you got a timeline when you got to be there? I suppose they just want want it sooner or later. And is it replacing old equipment or what's the story? Do you know? No, I I don't get all that information. I just make sure that the load gets there safely, mm. and um, we'll be there probably Tuesday evening, maybe Wednesday. Yeah, and it's funny about fogs, isn't it? I, I wonder if is this the time of. I know you get fogs in winter, but probably late autumn you, you tend to get fogs too. And we've had all this rain round and mist and it's humid, so there's a bit of that involved in fogs too, I'd say. Yeah, I think so. Um, this this is the first fog that I've had this year, um, but I think we're going to start getting them. And, and you're right, there's moisture everywhere. I was in Queensland last a week and a half ago and the creeks were just running amok. They were flat out. There were, you know, logs laying on the on the verge of the road. It was it's just an amazing setup all over Australia. Wet. And, you, and you'd see the roads. The roads must be in a terrible condition, I reckon, in uh, New South Wales and in Queensland after the the inundation they've had, and and uh, I suppose down Victoria as well. Um, I don't know about across the paddock, but um, you'll you'll let me know. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I think considering the amount of rain that we've had. And, and the amount of water that's run over a lot of roads, I think the roads have held up very well. There are some potholes that can swallow you, but mostly um, they're doing a pretty good job in keeping up. You know, I, I, you've got to be proud of the guys that work on the roads. They, they're doing a damn good job. 
and they've got to keep again. They'd be working. You say being flat out. They'd be flat out. Oh, there's another hole here, and people whinge about. And you go over a pothole, and bang, you don't see it. Yeah, just, you know. yeah, yeah. And and you know, you just they just can't help it. There's so many, so many trucks on the road now. There's so many cars on the road. You know, they they're just chasing their tail all the time, Macca. I know you. And how many wheels on your uh, your equipment? Oh, uh, what do we got? We got uh, 8, 16, 24, 32, 40, 44 on each truck. And how many trucks is there? Two. There you go. So we've got a, we've got a, two Kennys, um, four pilots, and um, we've got to get a police escort across the Blanchetown Bridge, but... Um, we may be able to scrape across it without the police there, which is what we're hoping and praying, because <laughs> we might be stuck there again. Oh, dear, oh, dear. Speaking of the Kennys, I was in Kyogle. I went through Kyogle a, a little while ago, seems weeks ago, four or five weeks ago, and I went past um, um, Brown and Hurley's, and uh, they had this uh, Kenny out the front, remember? And it was all schmicked up. It was just... A, a yep. truck with all their silver and chrome, and this had quarter vents made on the wind. Quarter vents. Do you remember quarter vents? I do. I do. Yeah. <laughs> Kick them open. Yeah, and you yeah, and you get a instant air conditioning. Oh dear. Yeah. And no, we didn't think that was a good idea. No, no, we'll get rid of them. <laughs> get rid of them. No, they're no good. Yeah, they stir the dust on the floor. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, uh, Jeff. Uh, All right. Well, enjoy your rest there for a while, and uh, yeah, hope the mist uh, clears soon, mate. It's it's starting to lift now, Macca. So, you have a great day, and thank you very much. I appreciate it. On the road again. Yeah. <laughs> see you, Jeff. Yeah, that's, that's the job. See, Bye. See you, mate. <laughs> This is the All Over News. This is the All Over News. You may not have heard of the Sid Harb, which is a unit of measurement in water, usually in reference to dams. A new dam might be built and they say, oh, it's so many Sid Harbs, which is refers to the volume of water that's in Sydney Harbour. This was a call we had last week. Did you get any floods there at McLean? No, no, it didn't break the, the, the bank. Around the place we did, but the, the town didn't flood or anything like that. But it yeah. was up right at the top of the levee, right at the top. Wow. And, it, you know, we've got a place here right on the river and, you know, I mean, people talk about water. I don't mean any Sid Harbs went by, but it was it was three metres right in front of us, Macca. There's uh, probably uh, you know six or seven hundred metres of river, the width of the river. You know, it's the Clarence, and it was up three metres. So three metres of water on top of the normal level, going across at about ten k an hour for four or five days. Worked it, it out. It, it, it reached it reached a record level and stayed at that. You know, like most floods on, I'm a Northern Rivers boy. Lived lived further north for a while, but most of them, yeah, you get those peaks, and they, you know, they come up for you know half a day, and you know they start to drop. You know, this stayed at that high level for four days, four and a half days. It was just amazing. Ladies yeah. and gentlemen, boys and girls, what Lee just said there, he said, I don't know how many Sid Harbs went past, and a Sid Harb is actually an accurate measurement. It's used by geographers and hydrographers and stuff. It means the volume of Sydney Harbour, and it's a lot of water. And Lee was saying on the Clarence, he watched the Sid Harbs go by for four or five days. A lot of water, Lee. Hell of a lot of water. You know, it's just amazing. That was Lee Scarlett last week talking about the Sid Harb. And I've always been fascinated by it because it's not really, when you think about engineers, they're very accurate and they're using micrometers and all that sort of thing. But then a Sid Harb is fairly flexible. So I thought I'd talk to somebody who knows about these sort of things. Leon Leach is an internationally renowned expert on flooding, the Great Artesian Basin, the Murray-Darling, etc., etc., and is by training a geologist and a hydrologist. I want to talk to him about Sid Harbs, flooding rains, which we've experienced for the last six months at least, and importantly, the records that Australians keep to keep us informed. Leon Leach is on the line. Good morning, Leon. Good morning there, Macca. Leon, I'm intrigued. How did this term Sid Harb come into parlance? It was a term coined to help the politicians in the late 80s to describe the building of large um, dams. So it's approximately 500,000 megalitres. It's not something you learned at hydrology school or anything like that? 
No, it's one of the things that you pick up via the grapevine. And I'm surprised that it's sort of used because this bloke who rang us is just an ordinary bloke and he said, oh, look, I'm not sure how many Sid Harbs went past because when the flood was on. So a lot of people must know of it. Yes, it's been in the kind of vernacular probably for close to 40, 50 years now. It's a term widely used kind of throughout the bush. And I suppose it's helpful for people who don't really know Cumex and things like that, how much water that is. So everybody's got sort of some sort of an idea how big a Sid Harb is. Yes, although it's becoming more popular. I should imagine people in Western Australia who might not have seen or not even visited Sydney Harbour can visualise something that is fairly big or contains a lot of water. And Lake Argyle, I think, is supposed to be 10 or nearly 11 Sid Harbs or something? Yes. So when you convert that, that's 6 million megalitres of water. That's a lot of water. So what we're talking about here is the actual volume a dam holds, whereas typically during a flood, it's the instantaneous flow that people can see. So if you have a flood that lasts for two or three days, might be totally different to a flood that might last for a week or um, kind of more. So it's one of these things, I guess, during flood time, the bomb typically just refers to river height. They don't talk about the actual velocity of the water or the how much water is flowing past. But when hydrologists are considering building a dam, we look at the total volume of water that has flowed past. Tell me, how did you get interested in hydrology? Um, serendipity, I think, Maka. Went to school, finished grade 12, applied for a cadetship, and that started the wonderful journey that I experienced. That was 52 years ago. And why is it wonderful? What did you like about uh, stream? Are you a, st- are you a stream gauger? Would the, we call you that? Or No, I've done a little bit of that during flood time, but mostly dealing with the water that lies under the ground. So I'm a uh, groundwater hydrologist. And of course, in this last couple of years, an inordinate amount of rain, really, haven't we? And, and uh, another bloke said to me, he said, oh, this could be like the 50s, Ian, which was very wet time in Australia, certainly on the East Coast. They certainly were, starting about 1940, 49, right to about 1954. If you look through the records, there's some of the wettest, wettest periods that we have had. And speaking of records, I think we underestimate the value of records and they're usually kept by people on the land, farmers, etc., who, for one reason or another, like to write down what the rainfall was and what this was. And I'm sure that's so helpful to the bomb and, and to people like you. It certainly is. It's one of the wonderful things about the Australian bush is that most of the properties have kept the farm records going. So they record typically the height. They wouldn't have been recording the volume of water flowing past, but they certainly recorded the rainfall and how patchy it actually was. But those records, when you look at them, are a a very good kind of treasure trove of knowledge. And, of course, water is the most important thing, I think, and always will be, despite the fact that you get a bit sick of it when there's floods. But water still and a growing population in the world is one of the most important, well, it's the most important thing, isn't it? It certainly is. And drinking water, globally, we're running short of viable drinking water. That is relatively cheap. You can always desalinate, but that comes with a huge financial cost. You've retired now, but do you still keep an eye on things water? Yes, it's always interesting, especially with the youth of the nation, to, I guess, get the, what what I've always been kind of trying to get through to a lot of people is to establish the better bricks first, like establish the facts. Just don't rely on the internet. Go and experience the real world. The foundation of science is always to question. And yet I suppose the most important thing still, when it comes down to it, is, like you said, people keeping diaries and keeping records. Yes. Whilst floods may be similar, there's the old cliche that there are no two floods exactly the same. Typically that relies on a lot of antecedent conditions. For instance, prior to the 1974 floods that Brisbane experienced, there was a long, there was a long wet period leading up to that. When it did start to rain... The landscape was already wet. A bit like today. Yes, yes. For instance, a dry soil can easily accommodate up to 150 mils before you actually start to get substantial runoff. 
but it also depends on the actual rainfall intensity. Leon, thanks for talking to us this morning and thank yeah. you. Thanks very much for your insights into floods and the Sidharb. May the Sidharb live, <laughs> may the Sidharb continue. Yes. Okay then. Thanks thank you very much. What can I say? Food for thought? Water under the bridge? Hydrologist Leon Leach. This is the All Over News, and as you know, COVID and its variants are still around and killing Australians every day. But in China, it seems alone in the world, is pursuing a zero COVID strategy. Lockdowns in China are de rigueur. About six weeks ago on the All Over News, I spoke to Bill Botel, who, amongst other things, is a strategic health policy consultant. I thought his analysis was well worth repeating. This is what Bill Botel said. Well, China is very different to the rest of the world in one big way. It's got the biggest population of any country on earth, 1.4 billion. And you can see that when COVID hit the world two years ago, what drove the Chinese government pretty clearly was the wish to not have COVID get into its population and to cause the cataclysmic effects of an out-of-control pandemic. They seem to take the idea that if they could keep COVID out, uh, they should get on with vaccinating their population so that if COVID turned up, they would be in a good place to resist it. But that's a gamble that seems to be unfortunately failing and the consequences of it could be uh, quite cataclysmic, not just for China, but uh, for the world uh, if this goes wrong. That's an elusive chase, do you think? Can you ever have no COVID? I mean, can you ever get rid of a disease? I mean, Spanish flu just sort of seemed to peter out, but uh, COVID seems a bit of a different beast to me. Well, COVID is adapting and changing every day. And since we've had COVID in the world, about every five months, we've had to deal with a new variant. It's almost like clockwork, because whatever the vaccinations we've got, whatever the measures we take to stop being infected COVID, the viruses find a way around it. So we just have to be as clever and quick as the virus is mutating, do the vaccinating, make sure that everybody's vaccinated and then put ourselves in the best possible position to uh, resist whatever the virus throws at us next time. I'm afraid to say in China it seems that the vaccination rates have been lower than they ought to be and I don't think that the Chinese vaccine, Sinovac, has been as effective as the mRNA vaccines that most of the rest of the world has now uh, used and in Australia. And we know that if you're vaccinated, you've got a very good chance of resisting the worst effects of COVID infection. It seems that they are vaccinating, but not at the rate that's required to get ahead of the mutation and evolution of the virus. China is a very big country, 1.4 billion people. If they had the same percentages as in the United States of cases, that might mean they'd get 680 million cases. And if the same number of proportion in China went to hospital as in America, that might be 60 million hospitalizations and four to five million deaths. And I don't think that the Chinese health system, no matter how dedicated the people are who run it, is able to cope with a massive increase of that sort of numbers. So you can see why they're trying to keep COVID out, but in the end, you've got to come to terms with it. And the best thing you can do is to make sure that everybody is vaccinated with the best possible vaccine. Bill Botel. Good morning, Major. Good morning. This is um, Dr. Ray Jones. I'm calling from Bogabri uh-huh. in uh, New South Wales. Yep. No, it. I saw planes. Yep. And I'm, I've been out here for a week um, doing a locum out here at the local hospital. I'm working with a medical centre out here. And um, I'm, it's a beautiful day today. It's a bit overcast, but it's sunny and um, the rain stopped. It's been raining here for three days and uh, now the rain settled down. But the uh, the countryside looks beautiful. Uh. All the crops, uh, you know, the, the the farmers have been getting magnificent crops for the last two years. And um, maybe it'll be three in a row, Ray. Maybe it'll be three years in a row. Yeah, that's right. The, the farmers have never been happier. They've grown beautiful crops, which whatever crop they're growing. Around here, they're growing cotton and um, canola and wheat, and they got cattle and. You know, they've got all sorts of um, things happening, sorghum, you know, you name it, they grow it. 
and um, it's it's a, it's been really good seasons for them, and um, most of the farms have got smiles on their faces. Yeah, well, we're feeding the world with uh, with our wheat, um, uh, Doctor we Ray. We're, we're feeding the world. So, listen, Ray, where where are you from? You're doing a locum out of Bogor. I, I'm going uh, from Mugulga, down near um, Costa Harbour. Co- and yep. Beautiful little place down there. Whoopee, the locals call it because Wulgulga is too long a word. But um, but but I come out here regularly out west. I've worked in Cobar, Burke, Brewarrina, Collarina, Lightning Ridge, Canamble, Inverell, you name it. I've worked in most of the little towns in New South Wales. In the last 40 years, I've never worked in Sydney. I left Sydney when I was 25. And I've never gone back. I've never gone back to work in Sydney as a doctor. But, well, you're, um, you're probably a gypsy, uh, Dr. Ray. I am a bit of a gypsy. Yeah. I, I, I do, do settle down in places for a while, you know. I spent five years in Port Macquarie and stuff like that. But um, but, I, but I like it out west. But yeah. it's just, uh, I, I was reading it, out west out here, because I've been bogged by, which is, Halfway between Narrabri and Gunnedale. Yeah. And Gunnedale is a big town. Like it's a town of about <clears throat> six or eight thousand people. And you've got a nice hospital there. They're building a new hospital at the end of the year. And I'm going there for a swim. They've got a nice indoor heated pool in Gunnedale. So I'll go there for do some laps today. Yeah. But the, the, the thing is, I've been working in Bogabri and all the patients I've been seeing in Bogabri this week. Have been paid for people who live in Canada come across the Bogabri because we're the only medical practice in in the area that, that can take on that can see patients. The the in Canada there's almost no doctors. The, the doctors have all left, and and in Canada, which is a big town, is is undoctored largely. Um, our mate Chris is there in Gunnedah, isn't he, Kel? I think Chris Chris Giddos is in Gunnedah. I think he's a doctor. But um, yeah, there, there are doctors there. But you, your people who live there, they they ring up and they get told that they've got a four to six week wait to get an appointment. They can't. They can't get in. They can't get in to see the doctors. Well, that's There's such a. But uh, Doctor A, that's the same in Sydney. You want to go and see a, if you want to see a skin specialist in. In uh, in the big smoke, yeah. Good luck with that. I mean, uh, I know that it's different if you have got an acute medical illness. Sure, you need to see a doctor that day. Or I had a, a lady with who went to the gun, presented at Gunnedah Hospital at midnight with her child, sick child, and they they turned her away. They said they didn't have a doctor on the premises. Um, I see. You know, the, the doctoring it just reflects the. The, the state of inland health is in New South Wales um, is atrocious. In all the towns I work in, like I'm 66 years old, I'm so obviously travelling around doing locums, but but they they're so short of doctors out here that I could work in just about any town in New South Wales yeah. all, all year round. Um, there's a yeah. There's a there's a the, the like the, the hospital system is in decay as well. They 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 have very few nurses. They use agency nurses most of the time in most of the little hospitals that um, are in the in these towns, and the and the staff are all overworked, and they're basically looking a lot of them are looking for other forms of employment because they're, they're not being supported by by the by the new south wales health well and, uh, dr ray let me say this that you may be right in in a large degree but i also think the attitudes of people in the jobs they do whether they be doctors or street sweepers has changed people don't seem to i mean Jobs are hard and they're getting harder because we've had, you know, we've had, you know, we've had pandemics and all sorts of things which um, put an extra load on everybody, no matter what they do, whether they're delivery drivers or doctors or working in a hospital, you know, cleaners or whatever. Um, And I just notice 
that people are not prepared to put up with things they would have put up with years ago. Um, I'm not sure that's good or bad, but I think that's... Well, that's, I know that that's the world we live in. People have got far higher expectations yep. now than they ever used to. Mm. Um, but they, there's... I, I think that the, the government the government could... You know, they, they, they could solve a lot of this problem just by... I mean, my oldest daughter is a, is a, is a doctor. She's mm. a geriatrician in Lisbon. My youngest daughter is just trained to be a doctor in, in Port Macquarie. They, most of their friends had no ambition to ever be GPs. Most of their friends did medicine. They did medicine. They did yeah. medicine now. They, <laughs> they want to become specialists in living in the cities. Yeah. But, they, yeah, but if, they, if the government... I think part of the training, when they're finished their medical degree and they're in the hospital system, they, they should have to spend six or 12 months out in a rural community. Exactly. I think you're exactly right. This is part of their training, and, and then that would solve the inland. Like Australia is... Australia is mainly on the coast, but the real Australia is west of the, the dividing West range. of the Great Divide, exactly. What yeah, about, it's the same with same with teachers probably. I mean, once upon a time a teacher had to, you were sent where you were sent to Bogabri or you were sent to, you know, right. you were sent to Mildura or wherever you were sent and it wasn't a life, lifetime, um, you know, sentence, but if you wanted to go to, Mil, you know, you go to Mildura for a year or two and teach, you might stay there yeah. or you might want to go back, but... I think it's great, and you don't realise it, Ray, do you, till you're a little older and you say, gee, the time I spent in Mildura was the best years of my life and um, and exactly going to Bogabri. And you're you're not a youngster yeah. anymore, but... Um, no, but I went to, when I started out, I went, I was, I was on an intern, I was about 25 years old. I got sent to Lismore for 10 weeks as an intern to, to work in the hospital there. Yeah. And I stayed there for 18 months because I liked Lismore. Mm. I stayed there for eighteen months, and so I never went. I never retreated back to Sydney after that. You know, so I, I just think that the government's got to start thinking. About well, well, about, Doctor Ray, when yeah, you yeah. say you think the hospital system's in decline, and it's probably just not New South Wales, it's probably around Australia, that yeah. everybody needs to think long and hard about that because it's really the basis of your whole society is is making sure your populace is well and and looked after in all sorts of ways. So. Um, thanks for thanks for your call, Doctor Ray. Um, how long will you stay in Bogabri? I'll be here for, and um, uh, I'll just be here for another week, and then I will go home, and and then I, I you know, I'm, I'm going to Warrialda for a few weeks in um, <laughs> July, and uh, I was there a month ago. Sounds that was an experience. That was uh, and, and all, all, uh, I, I enjoyed going to these. Yeah. Well, yeah, so yeah, well, exactly. Doctor Doctor Chris just rang us from Gunnedah, and he said, "Yeah, they're short of doctors. Maybe you should go to Gunnedah for a couple of weeks." Yeah, no, <laughs> Doctor Gunnedah is short of doctors. I know that because there's ninety percent of the people I've seen in Bogabri yeah. live in Gunnedah. There, I said, "What the hell are you doing?" He said, "Me." Bogabri's got a population of 800. It's got a population of 8,000. You know, it's a bit of a beast. But anyway. Dr. Ray, great to talk to you this morning, mate. Nice to talk to you, mate. And I appreciate your program. Thanks very much, mate. Bye. I mentioned the election's on next next Saturday, but it's already half done, I think. Is it 18% or 12% already been... um, uh, have already voted. The quote of the day uh, from Tom Rogers, the Australian Electoral Commissioner, I remind people that it really is supposed to be an in-person community event where people vote on the day and it'll be safe to do so. Well, exactly. I used to love Election Day, win, lose or draw, because it was a real community day. Was it sometimes, you know, people who live busy lives... But we don't seem to want to take out a day. Oh, no, we're too busy. We just like the way we do everything now. We just, and don't stop and smell the roses. I think it's a really important day where everybody should get out on the one day and vote. You don't get a chance to do that in, in the Philippines or in Russia or in China or 
many of the countries around the world, wherever you look, you you name, you have a look around the world and see where you can go and have a day where everyone goes out. And it's largely legitimate and above board and uh, we do the things right. We've got a chance to, you know, I think it's a, it's a great day and it, I think it's a shame where people say, oh, no, I'm just uh, sending my vote in because it's... It's a community day. It's a tr- it's the really important day in lots of ways, and I bemoan the fact that yeah people think it's much better to oh because uh, we're busy now. I know my grandpa. You know my mum used to vote for my grandpa and get him to fill it in, and she'd post his vote because he was infirm. He had he had silicosis from being a stonemason all his life. So, and I can understand that for for old and infirm people. I can't understand it for the rest of us. I think it's the most important day on the calendar, win, lose or draw, and I think it's a, an exciting day and a day to meet the community and you're out there and you see other people and 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 people are doing sausage sizzles or whatever they're doing or selling bits and pieces. I think that's a lovely day and it seems to have largely gone by the board, um, unfortunately. Um, and soon we'll just be able to vote at home and yes, you won't have to go and that's... I think, yeah, that said me a bit. Um, our number this morning is 1300 700 222. All sorts of, uh, I told you, I read that, didn't I, about um, from Toronto, the Blood Moon. Blood Moon apparently on Sunday night to Toronto time not tonight. So I suppose there'll be a Blood Moon. The nice thing about getting up early, um, even though there's been cloud cover, is that this, the moon's been just terrific. Um, in the middle of the night and there's been a lot of cloud around and then all of a sudden you wake up at three in the morning and here's this bright light and it's just, it's the moon. And did you read that story where they've grown vegetables in the moon dust that was brought back by Neil Armstrong and his friends? They've started to grow vegetables in it. I think they bought something like 360 kilos of stuff back from the, it wanted the little thing could take off again. 360 kilos of stuff from the, from the moon. But uh, they've been growing veggies in it, so I don't know what that means. Um, I don't know if vegetable growers will be clamouring to go to the moon to grow their veggies. I don't think so. But anyway, I'll tell you why I live where I live. That's the story. I enjoy listening to "Why I Live Where I Live." Says Deb and Dave and Wookie the dog. Uh, people living in the same house or town for years and years. I'm the opposite. I've never settled and shifted from suburb to suburb, state to state. So having sat down and thought about it, I've written my own version of why I live where I live. I'm writing from Balcatta, Western Australia. But how did I get there? I was born in Adelaide, 1963. I was the first of four girls. My first memories of where I lived was Brompton, a suburb close to the city and the train line nearby. The house is semi-detached. Bungalow facade with a single dirt driveway the length of the house on the left-hand side. About halfway down the drive was a large apricot tree, which were always juicy. I went to seven different primary schools, pretty much one for each year. Brompton, Woodbull, Murray Bridge, Port Adelaide, Kilkenny, Nailsworth, Hillcrest. In Murray Bridge, we lived on Mulgundawa Road with my granddad on Dad's side. My granddad, Rex, was a riverboat captain, obtaining his master's certificate for paddle steamers and other river craft in 1967. He was first mate on the PS Coonawarra and later became captain. Reaching high school, I went to Enfield High, which closed several years ago and is now a housing estate. Being the nomadic renters we were, I lived at several different addresses, but stayed in the one high school. My parents never did own their own property and we were always the eternal nomadic renters, moving from one property to another. Mostly, I think, because Dad didn't like to stay in one job. He was an alcoholic who regularly beat me and mum. I grew up in the front bar of the Windmill Hotel at Main North Road, sitting by the jukebox playing Terry Jack's Seasons in the Sun, which to this day I still love. After year 12, I got my first job as a shorthand typist with Australian National Rail, and I would spend time at the downtown roller skating rink. I would be there from Friday night until Sunday night. This was early 80s in Adelaide, and the family murders were the biggest thing at the time, especially when our local newsreader's son became a victim. Other notable crime events, the Beaumont children, two other girls who disappeared in 1973, the Truro murders and Snowtown. How lucky am I? I met my ex-husband at a bus stop. He pulled up and chatted to me while I waited for the bus. He could have been anyone, but he, he wasn't. I will always describe him as the perfect husband, but I just didn't want to be married anymore. From the age of 24 to now, it's been a who's who of suburbs. 
much like the song, I've Been Everywhere, Man. I moved to Western Australia in 1997 because of my son's father. I didn't want to, but I thought it was best for my son, aged seven at the time. We had lived over there previously, my son born in Donnybrook, but his dad was a truck driver, and in those days, if you lost your licence in one state, you could still drive in another. Back and forth we went. So in 1997, I left Adelaide in a 1977 mustard-coloured Valiant Drifter panel van and headed west. I have lived in a multitude of suburbs over here, currently but not the last, Balcatta, still a nomadic renter. Balcatta is the Aboriginal name for the northern portion of Kareni Up Swamp, derived from the words Bal, meaning his, and Kata, meaning hill. It has a history of being market gardens and houses eventually built by European migrants, predominantly Italians. I've lived over here for 23 years now, but I do not call WA home. I love returning to Adelaide, and as soon as I've crossed that border, I feel home. But I couldn't tell you where my home will ever be. I've always seen myself as a bag lady along the Murray River, with my three-room tent pushing everything around in a shopping trolley, as you do. But if I could, I'd love to own a Winnebago and travel around Australia, working as I go, and see where it takes me. That's why I live where I live. Kindest regards, says Deb. That's a beauty, Deb. Thank you. It's 5.30am and you're on the radio. I've been meaning to write for years, says Marion Fursey, but haven't had the time. Is it possible that I've been listening since the late 70s? No, it's not possible. Always recording if attending church. I've always wanted to tell you about the magpies perched on the kitchen windowsill whenever you've played the magpie calls. We too have lost sparrows and pardalotes. Well, sparrows are no loss really, but anyway. Pardalotes, wrens, silver eyes and tree creepers. That's the little birds. Since the currawongs left the Brindabellas to make Canberra their home. Ravens too. No, ravens are what we call crows, but they are, they're actually little ravens. We can't entirely blame the large birds. Local government and developers have changed the garden city landscape, or as we used to call it, the bush capital. And losing the govy houses, that's in inverted commas, and govy spelled G-U-V-V-I-E, that must be local idiom, losing the govy houses for McMansions, with little room for shrubs and trees. But that's the story, Marion, all over, all over, especially in the suburbs of the cities, and Canberra's no different, eh? We leave out three water dishes, different sizes and occasional snacks, mainly fruit and puppy pellets for the babies. Isolation from COVID-19 allows more time to observe the wildlife different wattle birds this year, and wonderful parrots throughout the cooler months. Living near the bush and several years of drought has encouraged more rabbits to graze, <laughs> to graze on the verges. Now, isn't that interesting? Because the other day, the lady said the reason why in Canberra they catch feral cats, desex them and release them was, <laughs> was to keep down the rabbit population. Really? <laughs> well, my... Maybe it's true, I can't believe but maybe it's true. Living near the bush, more rabbits to graze on the verges. I know that they are a terrible pest, but entertaining too as they try to engage the magpies with play. So maybe a plague of rabbits in Canberra, who knows? And Marion concludes, it occurred to me recently, this is in the COVID time I suppose, that it was now time to reread all the special books. That's a good idea. And finally this from Meg, and I've read this years ago, but it deserves rereading. I think some people, says Meg, need more space than others. It's hard love, wilderness offers. The bush, the outback, is not for everyone, and that's a reason for loving it. Yes, we have snakes, all your favourites, and found at times in and on the house, usually looking for frogs. In the morning I can stand in my yard and see platypus swimming down the river. My God, how good would that be? The yellow-shouldered wallabies show off their new joeys on the way past. Echidnas sniff and waddle across the hills in their quest for love. That's true. Do you remember the bloke who rang up one morning and said, Magra, I've got an echidna on my back terrace and there's seven other echidnas following it. So echidnas in their quest for love. The piercing screech of the red-tailed black cockies always turns my head to the sky and a pair of soaring eagles is a powerful sight. The rainbow bee-eaters position themselves in the eucalypt above my hives and catch the bees mid-air. I've seen the regent bowbird and heard lyrebirds mimic, and on a cool spring night you can hear the dingoes howling, teaching their young. We have a diversity of plants and animals that's unique and very Australian. Country people have a tough and passionate life, 
and this builds strong character and spirit. And that's why I live where I live, says Meg from Mount Seaview. If you've got an interesting story about why you live where you live, or if you're a gypsy like Deb, whatever. Post Office Box 9994, Sydney 2001. And that's why I live where I live for this week. Dell's on the on, on the Lockhart or in the Lockhart? Where are you, Dell? North of Lockhart, a place called Portland Roads. Uh-huh. It was a major air base during the Second World War for the Americans when they went into New Guinea. Uh-huh. And uh, it's about halfway between Cooktown and Cape York, uh-huh. Peninsula. And what are you doing there, Dell? I'm leading, I'm guiding uh, a group of people here looking at bird watching, uh, birds because... Here there's um, a number of New Guinea birds come this far south that are very special. Wow, that's a and, lovely uh, thing to do. There's eight people, eight permanent record res- residents here in uh, in Portland Roads. Yeah, so you're an expert, um, Del, are you? Yeah, I've been looking at them for a long time. Mm-hmm. And so is this like rainbow bee eaters? Do they come down from New Guinea? or? Uh, yeah, my, some of the birds are paradise. Mm-hmm. But they're very restricted out of New Guinea, and this is where about eighteen of them of them occur. Uh huh. And they're they're very very much looked after, looked for. Yeah. So but, these these people are serious bird watchers that you've got on your little tour, are they? Yeah. Some from Melbourne and some from Brisbane. And I suppose you you sometimes you get people from overseas because these uh, these bird watchers are yeah they're very passionate, aren't they? Yeah, they are. They they spend more money than you probably. Oh, they're underrated because nobody under they sort of go under the radar. Yeah, there you go. So to speak. Yeah, so, so yeah. what's the highlight for you, Del? Oh, up here. Um, the probably the uh, bird of paradise, which is the one here we share with New Guinea called the magnificent rifle bird. Wow. It's one of the one of the biggest and best, but uh yeah. Right now I'm about fifty metres from the beach overlooking the coral sea, which is like glass and Looking out through the coconut palms. <laughs> Somebody's got to do it. <laughs> You're just trying to make us je- jealous, Del. What's, Somebody's got to do it. What's Del short for? Is that your full name or is that? Uh, Delwyn. Delwyn. Yeah. There you go. I can't, I can't people think it in it's short for delicate. <laughs> I've had septicemia recently. I feel a bit delicate. <laughs> yeah. Del, that's a lovely thing to be doing up there on the... And the Lockhart, the Lockhart River feeds into the Coral Sea, right? Absolutely, yep. Mm. Any crocs up there? Uh, plenty, yeah. You wouldn't, we saw sharks at the beach yesterday. We didn't go swimming. <laughs> but anyway, a lot of excitement like that. Yes, a lot but, of yeah. excitement. All right. Lovely talk. Thanks, Ian. Good on you, mate. Nice to talk Bye. to you. Bye. Hey, Mackie, Chris Sturman over here in Thailand. How are you going? Oh, good, thanks, Chris. What's happening in Thailand, mate? Ah, uh, sun's coming up. We're about twenty-seven degrees. Just sitting out in the backyard, drinking a drinking a, a, a cup of coffee from the beans that we've we've grown ourselves. And uh-huh. um, yeah, listening to the program, loving it. Um, but uh, we've been over in Timor for a few years, and uh, I came back over here to Thailand to the farm, pending getting back into Australia uh, about July last year. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And yeah, got to put a few more trees. We've got some durian. We've got some avocados and the mangoes are coming up like you wouldn't believe so um yeah it's going quite well how about you how are you going uh we're all right mate we're it's very wet here um it's been wet for um it's been seems like it's raining all over the world rainy night rainy night in the yeah, aussie uh it's been a lot of rain a lot of el nina a lot of floods um yeah all, yeah. That, all that sort of stuff mate but uh yeah i suppose it's oh. just something you get used to it's something we can whinge and complain about like covid and all the things we whinge and complain about but Life's good. We live in Oz, mate, so it's pretty good. Yeah, good on you. Keep moving forward. It's great. I mean, I was over there. Um, I went back at uh, uh, the end of Feb. Mum was a bit crooked. And uh, I was able to get a, get a flight into Perth. I was in quarantine and then they lifted that. So I uh, scooted home and checked up. Um, looked after Mum for a, for a few weeks. And uh, all the ops went well. And she was 110% now. And, and um, once I knew that she was great, then popped in the plane and came back over here. To um, yeah, tend to the chooks. <laughs> Chris, how does the bloke uh, end up growing fruit in in Thailand? A bit of luck, and um, yeah, just uh, loving life. I mean, I I, uh, 
uh, was over in, in Timor, as I say, for a few been, been on and off in Timor since 2000 and uh, in, in banking and finance and business and some other things over there and uh, and uh, started with uh, a couple of gigs up in Papua New Guinea where I grew up. But the short short story was, Maka, that um, uh, when my contract over in Timor had finished through the middle of last year, we couldn't, as I say, we couldn't get back to, back to Perth, so... Next week's option was to come back to uh, the farm of Wasket over here, up in the mountains of Kauai. Elephant country, it's beautiful up here, and um, we we're going to wait it out until restrictions are lifted and popped in a few plants and trees and and grabbed a whole handful of day olds, and now they're popping out the eggs, which is brilliant. <laughs> so you said Kauai, ka- uh, elephant country. Is that what it – because I, I read something from um, Thailand this morning, an email where I've put it put – when I've finished reading emails, I'll put them in a pile under my desk in the floor. I don't dare go through them. But but um, a lady emailed me earlier about because um, we we're talking about signs of rain and signs of stuff and you know uh, animals know what's yeah. happening and said when the when the tsunami hit Thailand, I think it was Thailand um, some years ago, the elephants yeah. or, or before they came, before it happened, the elephants took off and went up this. Uh, Went to, head, headed for the hills, and now there's a trail there or something. Um, I don't, I don't know. You probably know more about it. Kau Yai, is yeah. that how it's pronounced? Yeah, Kau Yai. It's K H A O New Word Y A I. Kau Yai National Park. It's um, it's got loose borders on it, but um, it harbours most of the most of the wild elephants in the country. We popped up there yesterday to see if we could see any, but. They, uh, they, I mean, they like a sunset and a salt lick, so they, they went out during the day, but. Um, uh, they're up there, but there's a couple outside of a hotel, which is which is uh, catering for tourists. So they've got them harnessed and chained up, which is a bit of a shame. But um, it's beautiful country. It's uh, rainforest. It's like North Queensland, and um, the elephants sort of walk through the bush there. It's mm-hmm. quite a significant park, and um, yeah, a lot of tourists. But uh, yeah, we stopped the car. We saw a monkey, and all of a sudden, a whole bunch of macaques came out of the bush and and uh, wanted to take off the windscreen wipers, which was hilarious. So. <laughs> Except if, except if it was raining, and it's not hilarious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah we, we, no, we can't fill them with food, so uh, yeah, we kept the windows up and uh, listened to the AFL while we were parked on the side of the road. So. As you do now, Chris. Um, you said you grew up in PNG. Yeah, we went up there uh, in the sixties. Uh, Dad was a bang joy, and and uh, went up to Hagen, up to the up to the Highlands, Mount Hagen, and uh, my brother and mum and dad and. And uh, we followed on from uh, Dad's uncle, Gordon Young, Reverend Gordon Young, who went into Mendy, I think, in the late uh, the late 40s. So uh, we'd always heard the stories about PNG and well, the church of Papua New Guinea as it was then. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, primary school and, and uh, into high school and, and uh, absolutely loved it. Still do. I mean, I've been in and out of PNG ever since for uh, for work and visits and that sort of thing. But, um, yeah, a beautiful country, just uh, absolutely stunning and wonderful people. And, um, yeah, pretty handy to Australia as well if you if you want to go up there and have a look. Yeah. My producer, Lee, says that um, you wanted to talk to me about um, Smacker Fitzgibbon too. Yeah, yeah. You were talking jazz and you had a couple of great tracks last week. Just just a short thing. I mean, I, that, that sort of drove me to panning the note because I can remember uh, listening, listening to him on... Uh, on uh, Mum and Dad's stereo in Lay as a Kid. And then, of course, uh, he, he wrote the song or he did the track for Barry McKenzie, I think. But, the um, Adventures of Barry McKenzie. That's him, yeah. Dinky die tales of a bonza boy. That, that was one. And then he did the oh, yeah. one, and then he did it, uh, <laughs> The Adventures of Edward Gough Whitlam. <laughs> Dinky die tales of a bonza boy, I think, around the, around the time. But, yeah, he was... He just he had that he was a great little singer, wasn't he? And he played the banjo and the uke and and he just he had yeah, a bit of guy. he had yeah he had a bit of um, pizzazz, a bit like Tex Morton, you know, when he sang a song. I've got an album somewhere, but I yeah. can't find it. Yeah, no, he's pretty flashy. Um, yeah, beautiful voice, I thought. And um, yeah, and it, it was an all rounder. I think it was a restaurateur, and he, he you know he had the pub obviously, and and uh, he played his own gigs, and then. Um, yeah, things rolled on from there, as you would know. You know, with, um, you played with Cold Joy, I think. Yeah, for a, and, um, for a time. Yeah, yes, for me sins. For a time. <laughs> yeah. So, Chris, but, um, um, no, you, it's good. You'll you'll <laughs> you'll stay in 
live in well you've got to watch your trees and your chooks and everything it's uh and life's good in thailand how's the COVID over there hitting them yeah not too bad not too bad Macca. it's um uh, it's controlled i mean all the shops here are um are uh, cautious there's uh a, what i call a thermal device out the front it was i think it was government government issue and if you walk into a shop without a mask you sort of ushered back out again nicely um the numbers are pretty good um and I think uh, I think most people have probably had the um, had the vaccine. If not, they're, they're staying away from major centres. We're heading back up to Bangkok, bank, back down to Bangkok today to, to uh, drop off some fruit. Yep. So you enjoy life, growing fruit, in living in Thailand. It sounds like you do. It sounds like a lovely spot. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, it's lovely. It's nice and cool. Plenty of plenty of things to do up here, and uh, yeah, I'll, I'll get back into mainstream life. I think. Uh, um, in the near future, but uh, for the time being, I'm going to um, yeah continue to enjoy with the family up here as uh, as much as one one can and one does, of course, Maker. Exactly. And do, are you an Australian citizen still? Do you are you going to vote next uh, weekend? Yep. So you go. Yep. Yep. So there you go. Yep. Still an Aussie. So true, will true, Aussies true. over there will turn up somewhere? Do they, or you vote by post or on the line, or what do you do? Or is there a spot for? expats to turn up at yeah. the Australia House or something? Yeah, pretty much the, the Aussie Embassy. Uh, they're doing a great job up there. They've got, I believe they've got booths up there and, uh, yeah, you can your vote. Um, Did you say booths? Online, oh, you said it. booths. I thought you said booths. <laughs> we think got booths up there. Yeah, well, that's, well, that's all part of it. <laughs> <laughs> but see, that's, <laughs> that's, you know, I've been talking because the, the I've just grabbed me newspaper. The, I, I just saw this the other day in the Fin Rev. I remind people that it really is supposed to be an in-person community event where people vote on the day and it'll be safe to do so, says Tom Rogers from the Australian... He's the Australian Electoral Commissioner. And I could just imagine that, I don't know, if I lived in Thailand, I'd look forward to voting day because I suppose all the Aussies would come in and you'd meet Aussies from all over or blokes and ladies you hadn't seen for a while. So it's a bit of a gala day. And that's what I reckon voting day is here in Australia, should be. Um, I don't like this idea of... uh, Everybody voting, you know, sending a letter in. I mean, it's appropriate for some people, but for most of us who can get there, I think there's something, yeah. there's something, you know, feral about it. You know what I mean? Something holistic about it. Yeah, to yeah. be, you know, yeah. whether you vote. I think too much. Yeah, sorry, go on. Go on. Well, one way or the other, that doesn't, you know, that's immaterial. It's not immaterial to most. But you know what I mean? It's just here we yeah, are exercising yeah. I, our right, I, and if you're in Bangkok and you're voting and. I think that'd be great to be there. I'd love to wander around and talk to all the Aussies there who are coming in to vote, and I'm sure the people at the embassy would feel the same way. For sure, yeah. I think too much of what we do now is online, but that's also, you know, as a as a result of COVID and the controls. But um, yeah, social social activities that you know give that a big tick in in my box as well. I mean, getting out to see people and interact, you know, instead of looking at a phone or a laptop, is um, so what... needed once again. I think, and I hope it happens. Chris, great to talk to you. We'll catch up sometime. Thanks, sometime, uh, maybe we could do a program at the embassy in Thailand, and people can come in again. Yeah, that'll be that'll be brilliant. <laughs> Love to see you all. Good on you, mate. Chris. Great. Uh, okay, have a good one. Yeah, good on you, mate. Okay. See ya. Bye bye. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.